Welcome back to Mosaic Station. Uh, we're excited to bring you a very special episode today with a very special guest. Um, my name is Chris, um, pronouns he, him, his, director of the Mosaic Cross Cultural Center. Um, and uh, we have an amazing panel of um, SJSU folks that I would like to introduce. Um, well, I would like for them to introduce themselves. So if I could pass this off to Sierra. Yeah, um, so hi, my name is Sierra, she, her, hers. I am a sociology major, concentrating race and ethics studies, and I am a legacy project assistant at the CCCAC. Hi y'all, um, I'm Kendall, my pronouns are they, she, and I'm a ecology major with a minor in Spanish and chemistry, and I am a program assistant for in solidarity at the Cesar Chavez Community Action Center. Hi everyone, this is Sharon from Mosaic Cross Cultural Center. My parents are she, her, hers, and I'm super excited to um, have these amazing folks be on Mosaic Station today. Hi everyone, Diana Victa, she, her, her pronouns, department manager of the Cesar Chavez Community Action Center, aka the CCCAC. Um, again, Chris, thank you so much for having us today. I'm super excited um, to do this collab with you because we do have a special guest with us today. Um, today, our special guest, drum roll please, is Alok. Um, I'm gonna read a little bit about them, um, but I'm gonna have them introduce a little bit more about themselves in a bit. So reading off Alok's bio, Alok, they, them, is an internationally acclaimed gender non-conforming writer, performer, and public speaker. As a mixed media artist, Alok's work explore the themes of eugenics, uh, trauma, belonging, and human condition. They are the author of Femme in Public um, in 2017 and Beyond the Gender Binary in 2020. In 2019, they launched hashtag degender fashion, a movement to degender fashion and beauty, beauty industries. They have been honored as one of NBC's Pride 50, Out Magazine's Out 100, and Business Insider's 25 viewers. They are currently an artist in residence at the Annette von Drosty Zoo. Oh my gosh, I'm going to totally butcher this. Holst I butcher it too. I can't speak German. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a skill. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, foundation center for literature please welcome on stage or on the podcast a lot a lot welcome thank you so much for being here thanks so much for having me so obviously 2020 was a lot of things if anything it was a roller coaster of a year so what were some of the last moments for you all of that were kind of things that were highlights for you? Mm. You know, even though there was so much instability in the outside world, I think that internally I found like a lot of peace. Um, I was able to really return to myself in a way that I haven't in a long time. The nature of my work is I'm usually constantly traveling all over. And so for the first time I had to stay put in one place. And at first that was kind of petrifying for me, like, oh no, all my coping strategies and evasion tactics are gone. But it ended up actually being really wonderful because I developed old habits. Like I used to be a really big reader and I haven't really read seriously in a very long time. And now I just like can't stop reading. It's kind of a problem actually, but I just love reading so much. And then I also have just like, really been able to reflect and process on so many things that I wasn't able to while I was going for so much. I think maybe a lot of the students who are queer and trans might resonate, but when we're young, oftentimes we have to go through a lot of situations that we don't have the frameworks to understand at the time because we grow up in such a straight and cis world. And so as queer adults, oftentimes we have to like revisit our childhood and like growing up and be like, oh my gosh, like I was going through it. So I think I did a lot of that kind of deep forgiveness work for myself in this past year, where I really was able to have a lot of compassion for my younger self and really commit to my healing. Yeah, I can definitely relate to a lot of that and just like 
having to confront those things like in a good and bad way being in in quarantine and all that so just asking what were some of the like your favorite books that you read like during Hmm. 2020 so many but I will be brief I think the first book that I am telling everyone about is a biography of Sylvester who was the queen of disco in the 1970s um, and was a San Francisco Bay Area icon and um, the reason that this biography like moved me is that Sylvester even before the language of non-binary was doing it in the 70s so people would ask is this drag and they would say no I'm just Sylvester And their music label always tried to get them to wear boys clothes and suits and they just refused and they wore like a different look, a different wig, a different makeup every time. And just hearing about this visionary artist who died of HIV and AIDS made me remember that there's so many incredible queer and trans voices that we don't often hear about because of the HIV and AIDS epidemic. And especially in this time of pandemic and I've been reflecting on death, it's really made me realize like we need to shout out and like celebrate creatives now rather than like waiting until they die to memorialize them after the fact. So that taught me so much. And then I think one more sort of nerdy academic book that really gave me everything that I needed. Um, I've been doing a lot of book reports on different topics just to sort of break down these concepts for people. And one of the the sort of schools of thought I'm trying to understand more about is the relationship between colonization and gender. And there's a book called The Invention of Women by Dr. Oyewumi, who is a Nigerian feminist professor, who basically shows how in traditional indigenous Yoruba society, the gender binary wasn't really there. And in fact, society was divided on the basis of age, not gender. And it's just such a powerful work that teaches us that the ideas of gender and sex that we have right now are relatively recent. And that especially black communities, indigenous communities and communities of color have very different histories and relationships with gender. Thank you so much for going over that knowledge. And like, it's really exciting to hear about so many books that we all need to put on our book list. Um, Another question we have for you is, do you have any intentions going into 2021 for yourself or the work that you might be doing? I have too many intentions. (laughs) I'm a big intention setter. Like I literally really practice manifestation. So it's like every day I think like, what is the kind of day I wanna have? Like, what is the kind of energy I wanna bring? So I take take this stuff very seriously because, you know, as Gloria Anzaldúa, a really important Chicana feminist writer teaches us, we have to create the images in our head before we can manifest them in the world. And so I think that there's just always been a sacred tradition of women of color and feminist of color imagination, where it's like, okay, we might not have access to power in the real world yet, but we're gonna actually create the poems, write the songs, create the literature to make that real. And so for me, my intentions are, I'm tired of people thinking that the gender binary just relates to trans and non-binary people. Because the truth is, actually, the gender binary is, it's a bunny too, I guess, is harming everyone. And so I feel like there's this way in which every time we speak about gender, people will be like, well, that's your experience as a trans person. And I'm like, no, that's my experience as a human being. And actually, what I'm insisting is that every single person is far too complex to be reduced to rote stereotypes and categories, and we can and we will develop another way to relate to each other. So my intention is to really bring in with big trans energy and just basically be like, I'm tired of us being sidelined as like some sort of like insignificant minority, because I think the contributions that we're making actually can and will change the world. So since we're talking about books and talking about intentions, uh, I wanted to ask about your newest book, Um, beyond the gender binary Um, how has obviously this is what the book is about but how has your journey as a gender non-conforming writer artist fashion icon helped shape this book so a lot of people don't know this but I think it's really important to raise visibility of it over the past few years we've seen an onslaught of anti-trans legislation at the state level in the U.S. So in fact, in 2021, there are currently 20 states that have introduced 31 anti-trans legislations. 
if this kind of coordinated attack was affecting any other community in this country, there'd be so much more media and attention. But because trans people and especially trans young people are seen as disposable, this is not elevated to the level of an emergency that it is. We know that in the states where these bills are being debated, there's higher rates of suicide among trans and gender nonconforming youth. We know that trans and gender nonconforming youth don't often have support from their families, from their communities, from their religious centers. So this actually just gives license to people to be legitimized in bullying. And so I wanted to create a book that actually was a handbook that helped explain how the arguments that are being used to deny our rights are rooted in transphobia and to help articulate why gender and sexual diversity are essential for everyone. And so what I did is I read through a lot of these legislations. I read a lot of comment sections, which I really just don't advise anyone doing. It's kind of emotionally taxing to try to understand what arguments people were making to justify discrimination against trans people. And then I found that like, okay, it's actually just most people support us. They just don't know what to say. So for example, someone will say, well, I support transgender people, but like, obviously we need to prioritize biology over feelings. Like that's a big one that they use. And so what I explain in the book is like, hey, I always say, hey, Cassandra, and I'm really sorry if anyone's named Cassandra who's listening to this, but Cassandra is my prototypical Karen. I say, hey, Cassandra, actually, did you know that biology refers to a complex multiple series of systems? What you're doing when you say biological is you're meaning reproductive and you're especially meaning fertility. So you're basically defining womanhood as the ability to give birth, which is pretty sexist because I'd like to think that women have like digestive systems, like neurological systems, like there are other biological issues that women face than just fertility. Maybe when you say biological, what you're actually pointing to is that what you think is natural is not natural, it's actually political. Dividing billions of people into one of two categories isn't science, that's politics. Let me teach you about where that comes from. So my energy that I'm trying to do in this book is really trying to disarm the kind of narratives that are used to discriminate against trans people. Another big narrative that you see is, this is a new internet millennial fad, right? These are just people who are coming up with new words to describe themselves. I'm like, first of all, all language is made up, Cassandra. That's what it means to speak a language is actually you invent new words to communicate. You're actually just upset that trans people are making up language. It's not actually about the making up of language because you aren't protesting the use of the Oxford comma. You aren't protesting the word binge being added to the dictionary around Netflix binge watching. You only care about language when it comes to keeping trans people out of it. And then second of all, darling, actually there were words to describe people like me before the word heterosexual existed. The word heterosexual was only created in the early 20th century. Whereas if I have newspaper documents from the 1800s calling us third sexers in the Western press in English. So I don't even need to look to non-Western indigenous cultures. I can teach you in your own culture. There's a long history of recognition of gender variant people. It's not that we're new, it's that we are erased. So part of the way that oppression against trans people works is they disappear our historical contributions and make it so that we constantly have to have the same conversation every decade. And I'm kind of bored of it. Like, I'm like, can we just move on by saying trans people exist and making that political? Like, that's not, that's not political to say something exists. I personally like the word, oh, go ahead, Kendall. Oh, I just wanted to say that you um, talked about, you know, disarming. Uh, and I see on your Instagram all the time that you have this like talent or maybe talent isn't the right word, but um, probably comes with a lot of practice of just this like ability to almost always come um, to these types of comments um, with so much compassion and like love and respect, even though others in those comment sections like really don't afford you the same thing a lot of the time. So I just want to commend you on that. I see it on your page all the time and it just like, it makes me like take stuff back and assess the way that I'm responding to other people unvalidating my identity and things like that. And just trying to like come to it with compassion. 
Yeah. Thank you. You know, one of the things I really want to speak to to university students is oftentimes universities teach us how to criticize, but not how to create. So the way that we're trained in university settings is like, this is problematic, tear apart this argument. How am I better than this scholar? How do I compete with my peers? But what I learned as a university student actually came from community organizing spaces, where it was actually about building together, not about tearing apart. And so for me, revolution comes from actually imagining a new way to relate to each other. And I just don't think that there's anything subversive about reducing people to their worst deed, because that's literally what the government does. Like, I actually think we need to find ways to believe in everyone's growth and transformation, because we've all grown and transformed. And I think that's especially for the case for those of us who are university educated. A lot of us only find out about these issues because we got the privilege to go to school. I didn't learn anything about like, histories of race or gender until I went to university because that wasn't taught to me as, an, as a young person in public school. And so when I'm shaming people for not knowing things, I have to remind myself, we live in a system of broken education. Why am I assuming that everyone has access to this information? Why am I assuming that everyone can speak like me in the ways that I've been trained from the university? So how do I actually understand that they're not the problem what is the problem is American inequality? What is the problem is our education system, our economic system? So rather than I think blaming and demonizing individuals, I'm more interested in like working together to challenge the systems that reproduce inequality. Yeah, I, um, and I think there's an inherent classism that, that education really reinforces. And so um, thank you so much for, for pointing that out and for folks who are listening, right? I, I, you know, let's, let's reimagine what that looks like, the conversations that we enter, and how we can, um, you know, we talk about ending a lot of the, the social injustice and the political injustice. Um, but I think sometimes it's, we get stuck in our, in our, in our own kind of ways. Um, so thank mm -hmm. you for, for sharing your perspective on that. Like you, like uh, Kendall, I also have followed you on social media and the interwebs. And you know, um, I was I was watching an interview of yours, um, I think last year. And and you know, in the past, you've described the concept of gender binary um, as you know, uh, people often say men are from Mars and women are from Venus, which is great because that means the rest of the planets are for gender non-binary folks. Um, and I absolutely like love that. And it kind of, you know, made me sit back and be like, huh, that is a beautiful way to think about it. Um, so I guess, you know, uh, my question for you is if you were to align yourself with a planet, um, which one would it be and why? Wow. <laughs> what a great and deep question. I think I'd have to say shout out to Pluto on these streets because Pluto, people are just constantly gatekeeping their identity, saying like, you are a planet, you're not a planet. Like they're using all these measurements, they're changing the measurements specifically to exclude Pluto. And Pluto's genderqueer and Pluto's basically just vibing outside of frameworks of like normativity. So I just want to say shout out to Pluto um, because I understand that struggle. Right. Is she a moon? Are they a planet? Like what? And like, they? why can't they be all of it at the same time? Right. Right. I love it. Yes. Also just giving, it's like, it brings me back to like Sailor Moon days. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Sailor Pluto. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, on that note, I, uh, I really appreciated this one post you had made on your Instagram. I also follow your Instagram too, um, about how, we how performance and art and and self like self-expression through performance is seen as like you know it is just performance it's just something that you're either good at or not but you defined it as as making us feel like we are alive and we are capable of expressing ourselves like performance is how we define ourselves as living human beings and um and you explain that as part of your as part of your process for writing a book so on that question for, for students and folks listening to this podcast, what advice would you give to them who are passionate about writing? Sure. I mean, so much. I guess I'd begin by saying, like, writing is so vulnerable because your first audience is yourself. So unlike other 
traditions of art, like I grew up playing cello, you could tell if people liked what you were doing or like if you were out of tune because you could see them and be like, oh, I messed up. Whereas when it comes to writing, your first response actually is from yourself. And in that kind of cavernous darkness of a blank page, you're kind of like, who am I? Like, yikes, this is trash. And you're your meanest critic. And that's why for me, in order to be a good writer, you have to actually work on your trauma because most people don't get past writing on their notes app because they still think that what they're making is trash because at a fundamental level, they don't think that they're worthy of writing. So to really write, you have to believe that what you have to say is important. And to believe what you have to say is important, you have to do some healing work because this world teaches us, and this is not just like me blaming like white supremacist, capitalist, heteropatriarchy, like of course, but I'm saying our own mothers, like I'm saying our own teachers teach us that our voice is not as important, right? And so we grow up often being bilingual in the things that we say and the things we wanna say, but we're too afraid to say. And so fear actually then is the biggest thing we have to conquer as writers. And so a lot of times my writing and performance workshops are deeply, um, I guess, eccentric or different because I don't teach you like how to make a metaphor, like that comes later. What I teach you is like how to cope with trauma and fear and pain and anguish how to write whenever you're going through the very thing that you're writing about and it's gonna traumatize you, how to actually navigate writing about other people in your life who you don't wanna out them, but you wanna own your own story. What are those lines? Like that's how I write as a writer is like, I'm living inside trauma. And those are the writers that I love the most. And you know, I've been spending this entire interview shouting out people, but. One of my dear friends from college is, her name is Yah Jesse, and she is a novelist, a Ghanaian novelist who wrote a really popular novel called Homegoing. And every time Yah and I speak about the act of writing, she's like, some days I just write two lines in the entire day. And I'm just sitting there contemplating my life the entire day. And I'm like, this is a kind of writing we don't speak about, which is like, especially for writers of color, especially for women of color, it can feel like positively luxurious to actually like carve out space in your day to actually be like, what do I feel? Because so often you're having to cater to other people's feelings, other people's renderings of the world. Writing can become one of the only places where you actually ask yourself, what do I feel? Because people in your life aren't asking you how you're doing. So writing becomes the way of figuring out how you're doing it. It's an emotional thing. And I wish that we could have more conversations around the emotion and the heart of writing, not just the technicality of it. Oof, my soul right now, just like boom, boom, boom. So thank you so much for sharing that. I think the piece around like healing um, and doing like, and like writing about it too, um, has really, is like really brought um, a lot of just, I, I was reading like a, I was reading something um, not too long ago and it said that the people who cause you trauma, the people that cause you pain are not the same people that are going to heal you. They're not going to save you. And the only mm -hmm. person that can do that is like yourself, mm -hmm. um, not just yourself, but you know, of course you have your community, but at the end of the day, it's, it's on you to heal from that. So a lot of what you said really resonated with me because yeah, I think we expect folks to come in, help the people that cause us trauma and pain to to redeem themselves or help us, but that's that's like very likely the case to happen. 100%, I always say we're not responsible for our trauma, but we are responsible for our healing. And that move for me changed my life because for so long I was waiting for other people to give me my healing, you know? Like I was like, hey everyone, I'm ready when you're ready. And that's not how you heal. You don't sit around waiting for other people to confer healing to you you have to seize that for yourself. And when you start to prioritize your healing, people will call you a bitch, people will reduce you, people will say that you're selfish, people, of course they're gonna do it because they're unhealed. So they're gonna lash out from that place to try to recruit you back into it. But for me as an artist, the reason that I'm an artist and not just doing policy work 
is because I think we can change all of the laws in the world, but we're not going to change the hearts and minds, so it won't matter. I think that we can change all of the representation in Hollywood, but are we changing who's writing those stories, right? So the way, and Dr. Angela Davis, I think articulates this so beautifully, is the, the dangers of diversity and inclusion is we're not actually challenging the superstructure. We're just assimilating different people into the old school system rather than actually imagining an alternative system. And I think what healing for me is actually, of course, we're gonna to continue to respond to the people who are hurting and harming us, asking for the means of our liberation because that's part of the harm. But when I heal, I can actually dream more ambitiously. And I think that we live in a world that punishes dreamers. I know that in my life, I'd be taken so much more seriously if I could say, here's my five point like policy proposal. Here's we're gonna win, here's the numbers. But I don't think any of that works, you know? Like I think that what actually works is when we reach people at a spiritual level, not just a cognitive one. I think what you're saying is so important to hear, right? Especially when you're in college and you're um, figuring a lot of this out for yourself and especially if you're looking for an outlet like writing or poetry or photography or whatever like artistic uh, lens to kind of channel some of that healing through um, but you know I think I it, it you know right now we're living in a time where um, college students aren't having the same experience right they're they're not able to build that sense of community and there's a lot of isolation and sometimes um you know when we we've when I try to engage with students they're like hey let's like let's journal let's like let's like uh let's uh dance let's do some breathing exercise it's a it's like a foreign way of healing right like it's one of those those practice tools but then we are so like shame is so deeply programmed into like how we express ourselves, right? And how we take on the labor of healing that I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, how, what is like a step that, you know, maybe writing is part of the, the tools and part of the healing, but like, how do people kind of navigate the shame that's sometimes ingrained, right? Like, I know for me, for a very long time, I would write poetry, but I would feel like, you know, is it perfect, right? Like, am I supposed to be talking about these things? Like that that kind of like that shame and the imposter syndrome that kind of comes through. So I guess like what advice would you have for folks who may be on this journey and kind of being held back by some of that shame and imposter syndrome? Yeah, I think that conquering shame is the most powerful work I've ever done in my life because that is the sacred trans tradition um, we occupy the spaces and culture that everyone has said are unlovable and unredeemable, and we find life there. And that's why people persecute and punish us. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with them and their own shame. They see us and say, oh my God, it's possible to live life on your own terms, to dress like you want to dress, to change your name, to change your body, to make your own family. And instead of saying, teach me, they say, I'm going to destroy you because when you exist, I can't because I see all of the concessions I've had to make. And I've realized that I'm just existing, not alive. So the irony of trans violence is they see us living and our form of life is so powerful that they feel like they have to extinguish it. And so what I can really say is that's why we need trans leadership. And that's why I think universities, all these things, governments, et cetera, are failing <laughs> because I'm often the first trans feminine racialized person in a lot of these spaces. And I ask where are the faculty, I ask where are the administrators, and then people will be like, well, you know, they're not here. And I'm like, oh, wait, this is a coordinated effort to separate our genius from these spaces, to actually make it so that people will continue to have the same problems generation after generation. I've been spending a lot of time in quarantine researching the history of trans life. And what I'm finding is that across cultures across the world, we were always, people came to us for counsel. People came to us to help understand what healing would look like. We were medicine practitioners in so many different places. And the reason that colonists were so invested in destroying us is because people don't know that they're sick unless they have a medicine person who can diagnose that illness. And so I think the illness 
that trans and gender non-conforming people are diagnosing in this world is you have been told that you only matter in so much as what you should be, not what you are. And I'm in a practice, a form of love that loves you for who you are, not what you should be. So how did I conquer that shame? Is I experienced love that wasn't from my family of origin, that didn't really work. I experienced love that was not conditional on me being happy, me being successful, me being triumphant. It was love that loved me when I was depressed and anxious and disassociated. It was love that loved me when I didn't show up and I was messy and inconsistent and figuring it out. It was love that helped me transform. So to the question that Kendall was sort of bringing up before, part of the reason I practice compassion is, I think, how did I change my mind in my life? Was it by people saying, I hate you? No, that didn't really do anything to me. It was by people saying, I love you and I've got you and I'm committed to your transformation. It was my mom when I came home as a young person in Texas and said, why can't I wash this brown off my skin? I have dirt all over my body. And it was my mom saying, I'm still gonna love you anyways, even though you hate yourself, right? It's a patient love that actually roots for people and believes in people. And I don't think many people have experienced that love before. And that's what I wanna bring to every interview I do, to every podcast I do, to every book that I write is like, I don't need to know anything about you and I love you. I don't need, I don't need you to be something, do something. I already love, your love is not up for debate for me, but these systems of oppression make us feel as if we have to do something in order to be worthy of dignity. I say, not today. Thank you, Alok, so much. I really have been uh, uh, low-key overwhelmed by the messaging that you've given us today. <laughs> low-key overwhelmed awesome. is literally the best feedback I can get. So <laughs> it's, it's absolutely amazing. And I, I love this last message you were giving around um, just ha- like bridging the gap between why it's important to have representation and why it's important to have um, recognition of people's mm-hmm. identities. Um, you know, uh, Sharon, Diana, and I sit in the space of working for the institution as professional full-time staff members. And um, I'm sure they would agree with me um, when I say that, you know, we carry these scars, we carry these wounds in our institution. And sometimes it can be very frustrating for for us in these spaces to, um, uh, to, to watch the institution push back against um you know wanting more diverse leaders wanting more more um uh broader recognition of what counts as knowledge what counts as care and support um i was wondering just kind of selfishly um you know do you do you have recommendations on like how we can actualize like transformation within our institution like what are things that we can do to, to promote this um, kind of uh, transformation in, in our institutions? Yeah, you know, I get this question a lot. I've been performing at universities now for almost a decade and I just meet the coolest administrators everywhere I go. <laughs> and everyone's just kind of like, yeah, this is really hard to be part of these institutions that are loveless and don't support us and don't understand the work that we're doing and just care more about numbers than like heart work, which is what brings us to this work. But here's where I I guess my hopeful optimist will enter the chat. I think that just because things haven't been done before doesn't mean that they're impossible. So notice the places where people say that's impossible and live there and teach them, oh, actually it is possible. So for me, like I said, I learned the most from my community centers at school, not really from my classes. So what would it look like if we say, and we don't wait for the institution to like treat us with that respect, but we begin from the premise, we are the university, not them. Like this is where people are truly coming to learn. So that means I'm gonna take my job seriously, which means I'm gonna like do this work seriously. I'm not gonna wait for them to to sort of um, respect me or see me. I'm gonna go ahead and do it. And I think that's what I always have believed in my life is like, And I think it goes to what we were saying before about waiting for someone else to heal you. If you wait for someone to validate your entire life, girl, you're going to be dead. (laughs) Like, like validation is just not, it's not coming. Like, spoiler alert, like we just grow up thinking that someone's going to come rescue us or like see us. And and I'm just here to let you know it's not going to happen. And all that time that you're waiting for that approval could be time that you're actually doing the thing that you need to be doing. 
So I think what that looks like as administrators, I, I ask people, can you be vulnerable with your students? Can you say, hey, here's the budget parameters that we're having to deal with. Here's how the university prioritizes this work over this work. Here's the demonstrative history of how they've disrespected the leadership of administrators of color, of women of color. Can we work together to actually make this work out together? The university says you're supposed to be like adult, not talk about these things. You're all one unified front. But you as a like compassionate person are like, I wanna actually teach you the real talk. And those encounters I think are so transformative whenever we think, what does the institution want me to say? And what do I actually believe? And moving from that place of belief. Yeah, there's like so much off of that alone. I think it's so much has happened in just the last few months alone and we're just in a new year, right? Um, as a, like, we are very eager to make individualized intentions, right? And mm -hmm. as a collective, you know, I often like to say like, um, what are your intentions that keeps other people in mind, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's like one of the ways that I try to do the heart work right? It's, it's to have input. It's to um, invite folks to like uh, speak and be and take up space. And so mm -hmm. I guess, you know, as, as you mentioned, you know, you do policy work, you do heart work. What has been kind of um, when you enter spaces, the, the way that you invite folks to, to kind of come along on this journey with you? Sure. So uh, full disclosure, I, I don't really get science, but like I learned science from <laughs> metaphors for my poetry. So one of the things I learned is this thing called mirror neurons, which is basically when I sneeze, the same neurons in you that trigger a sneeze get activated. So our bodies are actually fundamentally empathetic. They're constantly mirroring what they see. So I mirror vulnerability. So I'm going to be the person crying at the meeting. I'm going to be the person like just wearing 17 prints and a mini skirt to work and like a functional seven inch heel and then asking for your help to walk around, even though I'm calling it a functional seven inch heel. We all know it's not, but it's built in interdependence, darling. So it's worth it. And people are going to say you're ridiculous, you're absurd, you're whatever, but they're going to be more free in their freedom that day. And so the legacy that I come from and I, I'm speaking to people like Sylvester here. Like Sylvester, one of the things they did that I am most enamored by is when most people were diagnosed with HIV and AIDS, they hid because they didn't want people to see them dying. Sylvester went to the gay parade in San Francisco in a wheelchair, basically in a hospital gown right before they died. And they were just waving at everyone else with not an iota of shame in them, right? And at that moment in the 80s of so much self-hatred and mass death, for Sylvester to be able to joke, they did the final magazine interviews with the Advocate magazine, where they said, I keep on getting annoyed because people saying that I've died and I'm not died yet. You only can believe that I'm dead when I call you and tell you myself. Like they're joking at one of the like most horrific moments when you model behavior that people have not seen before, it makes that possible for them. And so what I believe I tell everyone is make freedom real. Right now it's a theoretical construct. It's an abstract concept. But if you live a free life, there's no going back. So what I say when it comes to gender variant people is like, how many people are gonna read Judith Butler? What, like five? But when I walk down the street, 5,000 people just saw who they're perceiving to be a quote man, yikes, unambitious, and a beard and a miniskirt. And they're like, wait, that's possible? So I'm birthing possibility everywhere I go. So think about your day. How do you plant seeds of possibility? How do you show it is still possible to be professional and to be femme? It is still possible to be vulnerable and to be a leader. Like all those things that people say that they're trade-offs or concessions or those rules, live your life as if you're already free because you are. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about um, fashion, I guess. And you mentioned Judith Butler, which is, I've just been having a lot of conversations lately about what is gender um, in just some spaces I'm in. And I always um, quote them and say, you know, a performance, like that's what 
is for me and I think a lot of other people as well. So with that, um, I'm trying to ask this in like the least complicated way possible, but you talked about like clearly writing is um, really healing for you and a form of self-expression. So I was wondering like in that same breath, how is, is like, cause I see going back to Instagram again, you know, um, you really, I, I aspire to be able to wear whatever I want to wear and feel like how I see you feeling like fully yourself in those outfits and everything. And so I was wondering, like, is your self-expression through fashion a form of healing or more of a result of long mm. process of healing, if that makes sense? You know, the problem when people ask me either or questions is that I will always say both and. <laughs> That's the joy of non-binary is that I'm like, it's a little bit of both. Um, here's the thing. I have always cared about style because it was the first place that I could dislodge people's assumptions of me. So when they would see me, they would think like Indian, boy, all those assumptions of what that should be. And so then my style entered the chat and people are like, what the, you know, it interrupts a lot of those. Like, I didn't think that was possible. So literally from, from the age of like five, I was controlling what I was wearing. And I had like a deep sartorial presence of like high socks with like Velcro dolphin sandals, like purple sun, you know, I was just giving you the full fantasy and what I've learned is that fashion is mobile art, is mobile activism. And that's why I get so frustrated at the dismissal of fashion as a legitimate mode of political engagement. And when I was in university, there were no school, there were no topics around fashion, no classes around fashion, no conversation around fashion. And what I'm actually trying to tell people is like, okay, so let me get this straight. You think that people will sit down and read your book that is 400 pages long and written in high convoluted theory. Okay, 15 people are gonna read that book, Cassandra. But if I read that book and I put together an outfit that communicates those ideas, I can bring that to literally 15,000 people. So the reason that fashion gets demeaned is because it's accessible. And I think that goes to what Sharon was saying before about the classism of intellectualism is that we only see things as intellectual when they're exclusive. And so because fashion is a democratized art form, and when I'm saying fashion here, I don't mean luxury fashion, snooze. I mean like the ability to fashion yourself, like and fashioning self happens everywhere. It happens like my friend Shia Diamond, who is a black trans woman who writes and speaks eloquently about when she was in prison making cosmetics out of trash. Like it's like that sense of resourcefulness of like, I'm gonna express myself. That's what I mean when I say fashion. And I think the final thing I would say to maybe people who are listening, who are questioning their gender, their sexuality. Fashion is a really great place to actually figure stuff out. I never in my life was in a place where I could be safe and presenting myself until I got to college. And so on stage is when I began to like wear fun outfits and it'd be very much like I'm dressing up for stage. And then I'm like, wait, this is so fun. But then because I felt, and I think this goes to the point you were saying before about how college students right now don't have the sense of community. So I'm hoping Corona just leaves so people can get back to that sense of community because it was so foundational for me to have my friends in college be like, you're beautiful as you. And I was like, really? Like I'm, I'm beautiful in a dress? Like, oh my God. And so then that gave me the confidence to start wearing dresses more, which allowed me to start being like, I really like this. I'm entitled to my joy. I didn't know I was entitled to my joy. I've been disassociated and depressed my entire life, what? And so fashion can be a great place to actually practice joy. So when I'm shopping, I'm literally like, ah, this gives me joy. Like, this is so impractical, but it gives me so much joy. And so every day, whenever I'm feeling invalidated or like disrespected, I just like take a selfie and I'm literally like, oh my God, do you see these earrings? Like, ah! And then I just feel so much joy and I'm able to commit myself back to the meeting. And what is more serious than like a built-in mental health rehabilitation practice? And that's fashion for me. Like, if I'm gonna have to deal to your boring misogynist drone all day, you better believe I'm gonna look amazing so that when I go to my bathroom breaks, I'm gonna be taking selfies and I'll be able to steal some joy away from this curmudgeonly bureaucratic meeting.
Oh my gosh. I literally do that too. I'll like take a selfie in the morning. I'm like, yes. And then I'll be on Instagram taking selfies because you could do like hair colors. And I'm like, yeah, I have blue hair today. What's up? Yeah, totally. I can relate 100%. <laughs> so I appreciate you even more for having like pink hair because I'm like, dang, I wish I could do that. You know, the level of maintenance that she requires. Well, exactly. <laughs> I had blue hair at one point and I was like, mm, that's because a lot. at some point you're going to have blue hay, not hair. Oh yeah. <laughs> it dries <laughs> up so quick. Not blue hay, but you end up getting like, uh, what do you call that? Seaweed because it turns like, <laughs> if, you have, if, you're, if you have Asian hair like me, it, you have like that orange undertone. So then mm. it becomes green and yeah. It's all about the conditioning practice which is also having colorful hair makes me have to spend more time taking care of myself, makes me remember that I have a body that needs to be taken care of, right? So it's like, I think what I'm really, I mean, I don't wanna like have to like make this intellectual, but just for funsies. I think what I'm really trying to say is like, we live in a world where the default norm is like a white cis straight dude. And the rest of us live this weird disassociative world of being like, I'm here, but I'm not because you don't see me because, and that becomes our reference point. And so what fashion and style and beauty are for me are practicing embodiment in a world that says I'm not real. I'm saying, girl, I'm so real. You're going to see my pink ass hair and you're never going to forget it. I'm so real that the way I speak, is going to leave reverberations. So we have to be real because otherwise we're disappeared, you know, and especially in academic spaces, it's really intense out there. To any undergrads of color who are listening, like when you watch people take your life experiences and turn them into just like theoretical fodder, and you're like, this is really personal to me, like this is like my family and my life, it feels humiliating sometimes. So, whatever you have to do to maintain not just your sanity, but your dignity, we set the bar at sanity. We're like, you know, just like function, like be happy. But I'm saying, no, girl, set the bar at dignity. And if you're in an undignified encounter, G2G, gotta go, leave the chat. I think that's one of the things I miss most about campus is like the fashion that you see mm. on campus. Uh, so really quickly, for those who, um, who miss being on campus, who use it as an opportunity to express, to build community, like what are some ways in which people could still find that, but in this weird pandemic space that we're in? I'm figuring this out myself, truly. Um, I, I really just had to tell my friends in my pod, I was like, look, I understand we're all stressed, but I need you to spend about 10 minutes a day doing photo shoots with me. That's my love language. My love language is you're gonna get my angles and you're gonna learn my angles so that I don't need to teach you every time. My love language is you understand how to photograph melanin, okay? And you do not wash me out. And so I had to make that part of my care plan during pandemic is I need to be producing images of myself when I'm glam because most of the time I'm just depressed. So when I see a glam photo of myself, I'm like, ah, I'm real, you know? So that's why I really believe in like selfie culture and photos or whatever. They're not just creating representation for other people. They're creating representation for yourself. Like I was not near my hairstylist for 10 months. So I did not have the ability to color my hair. So the minute that I got my hair colored, I took, I think about 78 different photos, like different angles, different positions. I said, let's style it different because I wanted to create those images in case I had to go another drought of five months with undyed hair. How did I get through it? Through visual culture. And that's another argument Wow, we are bringing intellectualism into the chat today. That's another culture about how art is essential. Because people will say, oh, art is not necessary, but art actually is what helps us survive. Like it literally helps us be like, there's hope, there's future. And I hope that people can feel hope and future in my words today and know that things are gonna get different. I don't know if better, but they're gonna get different. How do you take a good, like how do you figure out your angles in an outfit? Cause like, I am not a good um, person in front of the camera like I just okay I think that you I, I just need feel to very remember awkward. the power of language here and say I'm not a good person around the camera yet add that yet yes we're all works in yes. progress that's why I'm talking to you <laughs> right so thank you so much for practicing vulnerability and mirror neurons are firing right now because there's probably a lot of people listening to this conversation being like I need to really get myself a game on together and I'm just gonna let you know okay 
So it just involves, you have to schedule it. It can't just be like, oh, I'm feeling good in this moment. I'm going to try. It's like, I'm going to spend the next 35 minutes devoted to finding my angle today. Then if you're quarantined, locked down, check the light in your house. Where are the best windows? Where do they belong? Natural light cannot be recreated. It's the OG. So try to find a place where you get natural light in and then move that camera around like it's a dance partner. All the different locations because each selfie angle is unique to each person. Just like everyone's gender is unique, so is your selfie angle. So then once you find it that works, then you start to experiment with the type of photo. Are you more of a portrait mode girl? Are you more of a regular girl? What kind of, you know, and then you play around, you get one or two that are solid that you feel good by, and then you recreate that over and over again for the rest of your life. <laughs> there's no going back, truly. There's no going I'm back. usually out here being like, there's many options, but when it comes to a good selfie angle, you're allowed to repeat forever. Okay, okay, <laughs> good to know. I feel, I feel good knowing that now because it's always like, well, I know there's a pose that I like, which is I don't like to look at the camera, right? But also because I like my hair. So it's like, how do I how do I keep showing that? And then at the same time, I'm like, oh, this is just the same photo over and over again. So That's thank okay. you for validating We're here me. for it. If it's a good photo, <laughs> we're going to keep coming back to it. Right. Thank you, Alok, for sharing your perspective and more about the work that you are doing. Again, we're so excited um, that you'll be one of our Spartan Speaker Series. Um, for those that are tuning in, please, please save the date for February 24th as we celebrate our 15th anniversary with Alok. Um, we have the link in the podcast bio. If you are interested in receiving a free copy and doing a meet and greet, just like we did right now, um, there's also a link in bio for that. Thanks so much, everyone. It's been such a delight and I can't wait for the talk. And it was so great to meet you all. And thank you for your thoughtful questions. And I'm so glad that we practiced this kind of vulnerability today. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Um, I cannot wait for this for everyone else to meet you. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. Listen carefully.